I'd like to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to a different book than we were in last week. Decided to do a two-part Christmas message beginning today and finishing on Christmas Eve, Blake's second favorite day. Let's turn to the book of Luke, the book of Luke chapter 18. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. Please follow along as I read. Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God in heaven, you who are the Holy One of Israel, Lord Jesus, Son of God and Savior of men. O Holy Spirit, you who wrote these words which we are learning from, take them and use them in our lives and in our hearts, Lord, to change us. Change us where we need changing. We might be right with your word. Change us where we have knowledge so that we might have more. And strengthen us where we have weakness, so that we might stand strong. So that when you come a second time to the earth, you will find us standing in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first coming of Christ is called the Advent. We celebrated this time of year. We memorialize. But I also want to remind us that the advent of Christ was the advent of the message of Jesus Christ. The advent of the message of Jesus Christ. I had first entitled this message in this way. Would the church tolerate Christ among them today? For I was struck in my reading of first and second kings that I've been going through these last number of weeks in my quiet time that Israel did not recognize Christ when he came among them and he was of them. That they'd even gone so far as to have lost much of the word of God that God had given them 
and had gone very far astray, such that they wouldn't even tolerate the prophets who spoke God's word among them. It is true that the world doesn't really follow and know Jesus Christ. That's a given. We accept that. But there in the world of unbelief, this idea of Christmas can be offensive to them. Hence, many of the nativity scenes and symbols of Christmas have been legally removed by government agencies, etc. And there's always a legal battle going over these images that represent Jesus the Christ child. And, and sometimes I wonder about that, this nativity scene. Why, why would that be a problem? And then I wondered myself, should it be a problem to me? I like nativity scenes, do you? They're nice, they're nostalgic. They represent a moment in time and history. And, you know, it is certainly glorious to know that the Son of God took on humanity, came in the likeness of a man, though he was God, and dwelt among us. But even in the church, I wonder, I wonder if we're keeping him too low sometimes, even with that nativity scene. We certainly know we're not supposed to make any graven images of God. There we go. But at the same time, we like this stuff. But the reality is, I don't think that the world is reacting to the little baby Jesus in his cradle, or if you will, in his manger. Do you? And I even wonder in the church today, as it's gone so far astray, and I say church general, that which calls itself church. I wonder, would they really tolerate the teachings of Jesus? It's a one thing when Jesus didn't talk and he's in the manger, right? Isn't it interesting that God used others that could talk to do a little proclaiming, right? A few shepherds in their field at night and had the announcement and went and proclaimed. Jesus was a baby. He couldn't proclaim. And then later on, wise men coming from the east, and when they got there, they said, where is he who was born, king of the Jews? We've come to worship. Ha <laughs> ha, oh my goodness. Now the world's taking notice. And then Jesus grew up, as was God's plan, and Jesus spoke. Bible tells us he had no form or comeliness that we would be drawn to him meaning he was the average of the average in all forms of his phenotype, if you want the genetic description, meaning what his body looked like, what his face looked like. He was average. And you wouldn't notice him in a crowd on that basis. And God did that on purpose. We're not to worship the flesh of Jesus were to worship the person of Jesus, and Jesus spoke. The image we need to have in our minds about Jesus is what Jesus gave us by his words. 
and the words in the Bible that describe him. His image is not a, a physical image. It is the recorded words which Jesus spoke that then create for us the appropriate image of Jesus. Jesus was indeed God's son. The Holy One of Israel had a holy son who was pure in every way. He was a holy man among unholy men on earth. And he stirred up a lot of trouble, not by his looks, but by his actions and his words. Today we're going to start sampling what over the next two Sundays will be seven teachings of Jesus. What did Jesus teach? So that we may examine ourselves as to our acceptance or our tolerances of his, of his message, of his image, of what he wanted us to remember about him. If he were here today and walked among us, would it be easy to be by such holiness and a man with such a message? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I pray that we are among those who cry out day and night Just like to this judge, knowing that the Lord bears long with us. The first of these seven topics that Jesus spoke on is this. And I decided to do this on the Sunday before Christmas rather than on Sunday that it precedes Christmas. It's Christmas Eve because... I'm starting with this topic, S-I-N, there you go, kids, I just spelled it for you, sin. Jesus and his coming had a purpose. Why did Jesus come? So that everybody can give Christmas presents? so that we can commercialize the day, so that we can celebrate and watch football? Why did Jesus come? What necessitated God sending his only begotten son into the world in the form of flesh? He took on mankind. Why did he come? We say Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, please tell me the reason. Well, Jesus. No, I want more. What, what, what is Jesus? Why is he the reason for the season? We celebrate his advent, his coming. And his coming had a purpose. And we at least as Christians, shouldn't we know what that purpose is? And here it is. His sole purpose in coming was to deal with sin. The sin of mankind, the transgressions, and the rebellions of men against God, very God, is why God sent his only begotten son into this world. 
John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The last of the Old Testament judges, if you will, for he functioned as those in those positions. And even as a priest, in a sense like Samuel was, so was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was sent, the Bible tells us, to make straight the path of the Lord and to prepare them for this one who was coming. This one whose sandal latch, John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy of unlatching. I, I've come to prepare the way for him. That was John the Baptist's purpose. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to his baptism, in John chapter 1, this is recorded, he turns to his disciples, those who are following him in this act of repentance, preparing the way for the one who's coming, and he says, and I quote John 1.29, the next day Jesus saw Excuse me, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here it is, Behold, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sins of the world. The first introduction of Jesus to the disciples of John the Baptist was this. Here he is. You have in this figure sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb of God, his origin of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is Christmas. And Jesus, when he spoke in his life, I wonder if we're really acquainted with the way in which he spoke. Because Jesus spent a lot of time speaking about sin. I realize in the world today it is not a popular subject. And in truth, we have to admit that at times, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, an emphasis on sin can make us, what? Uncomfortable. Because as soon as sin is exposed, you've got to do something about it. You have to deal with it. Well, Jesus came to speak about sin. This baby in the manger grew up, and he started speaking. And I've tried to keep some of these texts together. And by the way, we're going to be looking at a lot of different texts this morning from around the New Testament. And I've tried to keep mostly on the topic in a single book, although there are other books in which they're written and spoken of and other gospels that we could reference, but I've tried to keep them there just for the ease of you turning there if you desire to. Otherwise, just let these things impact you. John 8, 7. Jesus came to speak about sin. So when they continued asking him, it says in this verse, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Here we have the woman caught in adultery that was brought to Jesus as a form of a trap to entrap Jesus by their theological machinations of the law. And so rather than bringing the man she was caught with in the performance of adultery, they just brought the woman who was caught in adultery, and they brought him to Jesus and said, Here, 
This woman was caught in adultery. The law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus squats down, and we don't know what he does, but he draws in the dirt, and he draws in the dirt, and I don't know what he's drawn, but it seems to have some impact. And then he looks at these men, these self-righteous men, who are ready to stone this woman and didn't bring the man along, which means they're not just men, they're unjust men, because both of them were and should have been stoned. And Jesus says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, something about what he wrote, I don't know what it is. God doesn't tell us. And then something about what he said, conviction of sin, got on these men and from the oldest, the older ones who should be wiser and was, left first of her accusers. And then the other accusers went by the way. And Jesus would then ask her, where are your accusers? For the law of Moses demanded that you have to have two or three witnesses to be convicted of a sin. And she says, there's no one. And so he says, go and sin what? No more. Notice he didn't let her off by saying, you are not guilty of this sin. He just says that the trap they laid for me using the law, they're using it inappropriately to attack me, not you, and they're gone, so you're free, but you still got to deal with your sin. Go and sin no more. John 8, verse 34, listen, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of what? Sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Listen to this hopeful statement. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. The idea of slavery, I mean real slavery. There's a lot of ways into slavery, but there's only two ways out. Once you have a master, there's only two ways to become free of that master. And if that master is sin, here's the two ways. You either are bought free from serving that master, or you are set free by that master. Let me tell you something about sin. Sin never, ever, ever will let you go free for free. Sin demands a price. But you can be bought and set free if someone pays the price for your sin. And you know where I'm going. The reason Jesus came, the reason for the season, was to die in place of sinners and take the wrath of God on himself and pay your way free. John 15, the teaching of Jesus Christ, verse 22. Jesus speaking of the hypocrites who would not believe in him, though they knew the law, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have, listen, no sin. 
But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. This sin is the rejection of Jesus Christ as his identity demands. I did the miracles, so listen to my words. I have the authority by virtue of the miracles you saw for you to believe my words and you won't believe my words and believe on me so your sin is on you and you are, as he said before, a slave of sin. Jesus taught on sin, John chapter 16 now, if you'd like to follow me there. In John, some of the most beautiful teachings on the coming Paraclete on the coming Holy Spirit, that helper that was coming. We have this revelation about the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And notice, it is very similar to Christ's. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, When he has come, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of what? Sin. I want the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be convicted of sin? If you don't, you don't want the Holy Spirit. Why is it that we always start at the wrong end of the pendulum with the Holy Spirit? This is God's declaration. This is Christ's pronouncement. Here's why he's coming. To convict the world of sin. How will he do that? And of righteousness means so you can see right from wrong, and of judgment. Ain't this happy Christmas stuff? Well, it is if you get it right. This is the words of Jesus Christ who grew up. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to come. This is a good thing. He is called the Comforter. <laughs> the Comforter, whose purpose is to convict you of sin. But he's also to convict you of righteousness and of judgment that will lead you to fall flat on your face and cry out for mercy. What a wonderful gift. For without that, you can't be saved. Jesus, even before his crucifixion to pay the price for sin goes before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And in John 19, we read this in verse 11, a portion of the discourse between Pontius Pilate, governor of this Judea, and Jesus. Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, listen, this is what I'm aiming at. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you're sinning. You're knowingly pronouncing a judgment upon an innocent man and sending him to death on the cross. But the one who has the greater sin are my accusers from my own people. And this shows you that there are gradients of punishment under the heading of sin. 
The greater sin rests upon those who are accusing Jesus falsely even more than Pontius Pilate, who has the power to kill him. Now, let me tell you this, that Jesus actually called men sinners. You know, sometimes we're told that Jesus is all love. And he is, but not all. That's one aspect of his character and person. And he even called men sinners. He even pointed out that sinners are living in sin. In Mark chapter 2, listen to this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 15, now it happened as he was <clears throat> excuse me, dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors, and here they are, and sinners also sat together with Jesus. And his disciples were there as well, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now pay attention here. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now another declaration of his purpose in coming from his very own lips, Jesus said, I did not come. So you want to know what he did not come to do? Here it is. I did not come to call the righteous. So there's a group of people Jesus did not come to call. He did not come to call the righteous. We could add in there the self-righteous. But sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous who don't think they need to repent. I came to, call, to be with the sinners who know they need to repent, to turn from their sins and turn to me. That's who I've come to call. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Do you know him as that Jesus? Can we handle that kind of stuff in our church and in our hearts and minds? I know what the world has to say about it. I just hope the world hasn't come in. Sometimes I wonder what would happen to us physically if we saw Jesus right now. Would we, would we be like the prophets who saw just a glimpse of his glory and say, I'm undone. I'm going to die. I've seen the living God. Will we be like Isaiah, who is a vision only of God, and he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. His sin and sinfulness exposed by seeing God can only imagine what being in Jesus' presence was like. Wouldn't it have been conviction central? That the goodness and the purity and the righteousness of him would just exude from him. Yes, gloriously, but also convictingly. Such so we would cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you must be able to say those words if you're going to do business with Jesus. 
or you're the self-righteous and he didn't come to call you. Let's look at Luke now, chapter 6. Jesus called men sinners and he caught them living in sin, but that wasn't really his purpose, but he pointed it out. Luke 6, verse 32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? You say, yeah, I'm a real loving person. Oh, I'll even show you. See that person? I really love them because they love me back. What about that one? No, I don't like him. Why? Because he doesn't like me. I don't want to love them back. That's, that's natural and easy, isn't it? And Jesus just points it out. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even, here he goes, even sinners love those who love them. So how are you different, Christian? If you only love people who love you, how different are you? And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For every, oh, even sinners do the same. I love it. Even sinners. Even sinners. I mean, who are you calling even sinners over here? Can't you just hear it? Even sinners? Are you calling me a sinner? I'm not. Jesus is. Get over it. But you can't get over it until you find out you're a sinner. That's the message of Christmas. That's why he came. And it's a good thing to find that out. Verse 34, Luke 6, And if you lead, lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to re receive as much back. He called them sinners. He wasn't afraid of it. Jesus also marked out two types of sinners. Actually marks out three, and I'm only going to do two of them because they're the most poignant. He's already mentioned the first type, those that know they're sinners. You know, Jesus had the least condemning language for those who already understood they were sinners. There they are having dinner together. But because they were having dinner together, there was another kind of sinner that wouldn't sit down to eat with them because he was sitting down with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus marked out two types of sinners, and the first one is that type that I just mentioned, the religious hypocrites, those who have religion, those who are good at religion, those who practice religion but are hypocrites in their practice. And these can be put under the title of Pharisees. Not that they were the only ones, but they were in Jesus' life regularly and they were leaders in Israel, supposedly to leave Israel, lead Israel to do the law, yet they had become a conservative form of religion. They designed themselves to keep the traditions and the law of God, but they did so with a wooden adherence to the law of God that God never intended. And it became, over time, a practice of what is called external religion. You know, the ones that are clean on the outside, but in the heart, the real belief isn't there. That kind of sinner. They didn't have a heart of repentance or a heart that acknowledged that they were sinners. 
In a sense, they would sound like this. We can keep the law so well that we don't have to keep it. But you, sinners, better keep the law. And we're going to be watching to catch you if you don't. That kind of hypocrisy. And if that's in the church, that's a heinous thing because this is how Jesus begins to talk about this from one of his very first sermons called the Sermon on the Mount where he sits down to teach all and people are amazed by his teaching. And why were they amazed? Because he spoke like this. Matthew 5, verse 20. Now you have to think like an Israeli. You have to think like a Hebrew now when I read this. Over you are the Pharisees. They are part of your religion. They're keepers of the law. And then this man, this Jesus, sits down and he starts saying stuff like this. Matthew 5, 20, For I to say to you that unless, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, look at this. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, i.e. you go to hell. You can't enter my kingdom unless the righteousness that you practice is a superior form to what the scribes and Pharisees are practicing with their external religion. They keep it on the outside, but there's no heart change on the inside. That would be an interesting teaching. That's Jesus. There's a lot of self-righteous people in this world today who follow a form of religion. All kinds of forms of religion. Conservative religion even. Keeping the traditions with no change. Jesus goes on to talk about these hypocrites who wear one face in public and in private they have another. Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6 now, the same Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, Jesus instructs, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. I'm giving to the poor. Dun, 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 dun. Do you know how much I gave to the poor this year? You don't know? Let me tell you. You need to know. I gave to the poor. I am now giving to the poor. Go into the homeless shelter. Who wants to go? Oh, you, you, sinners, we're going. We're going to give. Do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, meaning they don't have a reward from God. They've already received the acclaim that they wanted from men, and that's all they're ever going to get. Matthew 6, now I'm going backwards just a little bit. Verse 1, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, listen, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They have their reward. They wanted to be seen. They were seen praying. How spiritual are they? Though they're not spiritual at all, actually, you see. They're hypocrites. Skipping down now to Matthew 6, still the Sermon on the Mount. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, 
with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. You know, there's people that live in this world. Like the Pharisees. And, and you, could, you can entitle them this. Those who are keeping up appearances. You got to keep up the appearances. You know, some people mow their lawn for this reason. Because the neighbors will see if I didn't, right? Some people wash their car. So everyone will know that they keep their car, what? Washed. And those kind of people are the kind of people who look at your yard, and if you missed one, you didn't mow, you didn't wash the car, they might find a way of saying that. That looks like kind of a wild bramble patch growing in your yard, huh? A little trouble getting that old mower started, I see. <laughs> Guess better call the Homeowners Association. Don't have those here, but go to California. You'll find out. Didn't wash your car. Didn't dress this way. And if that's the only reason you're doing it is to keep up appearances so you appear to be having everything all right, but inside it's a mess. Inside it's full of sin. Jesus talking to you. I wonder if Jesus would be acceptable today. I'm fasting. <sighs> I feel a little faint because I'm fasting for the Lord. Well, that's all you're going to get. It's a little sympathy from me, so I guess I better give you a lot. Because that's all you're going to get. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, ends in this chapter. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Two things to note. One, it doesn't say don't help your brother with sin. What it does say is don't be it. Do it in a hypocritical fashion. First examine your own life. Make sure you're following the Lord. Then you can help your brother follow the Lord with your help because your help will be at that point more humble and less judgmental. Amen? That's a sermonette right there. Matthew 23. You want to really know how Jesus feels about those who pretend to follow his religion. By the way, the law is Jesus' religion as he walked because he said that heaven and earth would pass away before one jot or one tittle failed in the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly while he walked on earth. So don't you think he didn't like the law of Moses? He kept the law of Moses. But he didn't like those who said they were keeping it and were faking it. And he dealt with them thus. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does he mean by that? It means they sit in the position of religious authority. There was a seat called Moses' seat in the temple and in synagogues, but that was where they sat to teach. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe. Why would he say that? Because they usually read it from the law. So when they tell you to do it from the law, and it's from God's law, even though they're not keeping it, here's what you do. 
Whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. And what are their works? For they say, listen, and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. I.e., they add to God's law more than God's law has in it and give them extra things to do. And if you don't think they're in Baptist circles, just remember the old Baptist saying, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. One chuckle. The rest of you are scared to death of answering wrong. That should be funny in a certain way. We know hypocrisy. The Bible doesn't say Baptists can't dance and should never dance. It never says that. But Baptists have brought it in and said, if you dance, you're sinning. You know, you can dance and not sin, and you can sin and dance. Did you know that? The easy thing is to say, well, then don't dance. And some of you might sin and dance, then don't dance. Some of you might drink and sin. Some of you might not, but okay, let's just not do it at all. Some of you might smoke. Not in the Bible. What do we do about that? Oh, well, it's a law anyway. Don't smoke neither. Unless you're a Baptist in the South and live next to the tobacco fields, then you can smoke. Is that a hypocrisy that exists? Absolutely. So it comes into our churches. That's why I'm trying to say it. And we only have the right to speak authoritatively as God spoke or we're hypocrites, holding people to standards God never intended them to have to keep. Now, I don't say they're not any standards. I'm just saying they better be God's standards because the reason they used to laugh like that is they were laughing at the hypocrisy of the Baptists who don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, etc. I think all of those things had better be treated very carefully, but they better be treated biblically. We may not hold forth about sins that we have manufactured that God has not. But see how much harder this is? Or you get this kind of judgment from Jesus? It becomes then sin. They say and do not do. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their little finger. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their border, the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greeting, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Then he starts to pronounce what are called woes, which mean judgments. Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters, I want you to listen, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, listen, justice, mercy, and faith. Do you know you could do everything in the law of Moses and go to hell? You can keep all of the Ten Commandments and still go to hell? What? Yes. If you keep them to be seen on the outside and not because you believe God on the inside. 
You don't understand God's justice and God's mercy, which means he doesn't give you his justice, and you follow that by faith. These you ought to have done, he says to the Pharisees, without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. We call these the nitpicker kind of people. Oh, you didn't do this. Oh, you didn't do that. Oh, you didn't do this. All the time, they have no mercy. They have no love. They have no help. That was the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Christ's final words on this group of people, Matthew 23, 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? For you see in all their religiousness they were slaves of sin. Jesus talked about sin. He talked about types of sinners. And he also talked about types of sinners who were conservative, but also types of sinners who were liberals. The religious liberals, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you see, were a, a political religious party. I wonder if that happens nowadays. A political religious party. I think we've got two of them that are political and religious, but not necessarily in the right direction. One on the side, perhaps, of Pharisees, and the other on the side of, well, let's listen to this definition. They used religion to gain rule over people. They use religion to gain rule over people. Like, your carbon footprint is too big. You're going to have to buy an electric car. If somebody tells me I have to buy an electric car, I call that rule. I don't have to buy anything. But that's a religion, the worship of the earth. The worship of trying to save the earth. Let's make it say what we want. Then we can fly on airplanes that guzzle down jet fuel and talk about how everyone else on the earth can't have a gas stove in their house. Sounds like Sadducees to me. The Sadducees also denied all supernatural religion. They bent religion to their will, denying all the supernatural. They denied the resurrection. They de denied a literal hell. You know that goes on today. People don't believe there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And they tend to fall on the liberal side of things. It's a religion. We don't believe in the supernatural, yet we believe we as natural man can save the world that was made by a supernatural God. I'm just saying it's a religion. They also did not believe in hell. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe that man had an immortal soul. There was just the here and now. You live for today and for now, and that's all you have. They demanded evidence. Does this remind you of anyone? If science can't prove it, then it can't be true. Well, you know what? Science can't prove that the virgin birth. You know why? Because science can't make a virgin give birth because they're not God. 
and that's about Christmas. So they denied that as well. And they are contemptuous of all who bought into this faith in a supernatural God. They had a secular concern coupled with worldliness that caused them to consider Jesus when he came in his first advent just another religious zealot that they were going to need to deal with, but they weren't going to take him seriously. Well, Jesus talked about these people as well. These are another ones that tried to bring a theological trap to Jesus. See, these, these were the ones that had their own schools. Do you know that Harvard used to be a divinity school and it still has a divinity school? Look it up. You know, Princeton used to be a divinity school, a religious school. Yale used to be a divinity school. Columbia used to be a, delivery, a school that taught pastors as well. All of these were to train pastors, and some of them still do, and they send them forth from these cesspools of liberal ideology and train children to stand with signs that say, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. This happened in our country. I wonder if they would like Jesus for Christmas. I wonder if we can handle it. Why are we sending our children to these institutions? So they're pretty smart people. They've got degrees. So did the Sadducees. And they were setting a trap for Jesus because they're the smart ones and he's a dumb one and they've got him. Because they don't believe in supernatural stuff. So they find Jesus that same day, the Sadducees, Matthew 22, 23, who say there is no resurrection. See, this is the setup. They say there's no resurrection, and they're ready to argue that topic. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's exactly what it says. God cares about the genetic line being carried on. So they then pose this question. Verse 25. Now there, there, were, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. So seven brothers all had the same wife. None of them produced offspring. And then they set this up this way. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, and you can just hear the scorn, so in the resurrection that you believe in, whose wife of the seven will she be for they all had her? Oh, we got you now. The law says it's supposed to happen. They marry, she married all of them. After she dies and goes to heaven, what, she got seven husbands now? <laughs> Jesus answered notice Jesus didn't pause Jesus wasn't worried Jesus knows the law and Jesus said this to them you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God why don't we talk to these people at Harvard and Yale and such like that this way you are mistaken not knowing listen 
the scripture. The problem with liberals are is they don't read the word of God. They twist the word of God. And if we know the word of God, there's no power in them. There's only power of God. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, he says. Listen, verse 30. For in the resurrection, Jesus says, They will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Da-da-da! Settled. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, I want my wife, I want my husband in heaven. I'm just saying, this is what Jesus said. You are going to have a relationship, most certainly, with all people there, but the one you have with Jesus, the one you have with God, will matter the most. I can't spend any more time there, just take that as a balm. Verse 31, he goes on, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, now I'll fix that, he says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Here's the kicker. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Right there, he just said, these men that you know to be dead, your forefathers are not dead because they believed in me and were counted righteous, and they yet live, and I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. So there's a resurrection from the dead because they're alive. And by this time, they'd been dead hundreds of years. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. This world-bound focus of the Sadducees, Sadducees is illustrated here. They were secularists of the highest nature. And Christ takes them on in Luke 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will save my soul. Soul, you have many goods laid up. For many years. Take your ease. Uh, I think we would say it this way. Retire. If that hurts, I'm just sorry. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You live for the wealth of this world and the ease of this world, then that's where your heart is. He finishes by saying this, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, if you work your whole life for retirement, so you can take your ease, that's not why you work. You work for God. To enjoy your work before God, as it says in Ecclesiastes, enjoy the wife and enjoy your work, enjoy the fruit of the labor of your work, all your vain days. And then enjoy your God as the highest form of that. So we work because God made us workers. We don't work so we can earn a retirement. But be rich toward God. 
Isn't Jesus the one who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? Let me touch on two more teachings of Jesus, just because I have to, to be ready for next week, so give me two minutes. Nah, five. <laughs> repentance. He taught about sin, but he didn't leave you there. Jesus taught about repentance. Matthew 9, 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, we went over this before, but go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to turn from your sin to God. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 17, are these. At that time, Jesus began to preach. He had not preached yet. Now he's of the age. It's of the time he begins to preach. And these are his words. They start with this word, repent. If you want Jesus, you want a Jesus who talks about sin, and you want a Jesus who calls people to repentance. That means to turn from their sin to the living God because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be in the kingdom, you have to repent of your sin. In Matthew 11, verse 20, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Listen, because they did not repent. They did not turn from their sins. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, add another minute. This is for free. This is what this tells you about God. Not only does God know the future and know it well, he also knows all the possibilities of the future had it gone that way or had he wanted it to go that way, such that he could say with authority, had he gone to Tyre and Sidon, the cities, uh, the pagan cities of the Phoenicians on the coast of the Mediterranean in the north of Israel, these pagan people, if Jesus had gone there and done the same miracles there that he did in these Hebrew cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented. What a scathing rebuke on his own people, but also a revelation of what God knows. That's all I can do. It's just cool. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable Wow, let this just blow you back in your seat. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You mean those pagan people up there who never had you as their God? Mm-hmm. That also tells us there's degrees of punishment, doesn't it? There's hotter places in hell than others. It's biblical. Tyre and Sidon will have a cooler place than Bethsaida and Chorazin because they had the very Son of God in their midst and they would not tolerate him even with the miracles. That's how serious this is. Mark 1, 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. 
Luke 13, 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He taught sin, he taught repentance, and he taught judgment. Judgment, John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You want to say Jesus is love. Jesus is a Savior. Jesus came to save everybody. No, Jesus has come to talk about sin, repentance, and that he's the judge. It's given unto men to die once. And afterwards, what? The judgment. That's where we're studying in Hebrews. And Jesus will be the judge. The reason being that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't choose God and not choose Jesus. You can't choose Jesus and not choose God the Father. The Father and the Son, Jesus said, are one. John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into what? Judgment. That's the way out of sin and its consequences. That's the way through repentance, believing in him whom he has sent has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a gift of Christmas for everyone who will believe. But you see, if you don't believe there's something good in that package, you won't open it up on Christmas. You'll leave it under the tree. What's in that package? It looks like socks. I'm talking to guys now. I found out girls are different. If it looks like socks, that's the last thing I'm opening. I'm just telling you. I need socks. We all need socks. But that's not a great gift to me. Now, if those socks have booster rockets on them, and I can fly, I'm opening that thing first. Right? So if those socks can take you into the stratosphere, if those can take you to Jesus, if they can take you to heaven, if it forgives your sin, you're going to believe in that package and you're going to open that up. First. But if you don't, you're going to leave it there. And that's the way it is with men in the world, women in the world. You either open it or you don't. But you have to believe that Jesus packaged something that's going to take care of sin. And we're going to have to deal with repentance from that sin and judgment. Or you're not going to open it up. Just such a man spoke on earth. And when he comes again, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
our king has come. Let earth receive her king. Let us also receive the Savior who takes away the sin of the world, who spoke of sin, who spoke of repentance, who spoke of judgment. That is Jesus in whom we believe now and for all of eternity. And by that we will have everlasting life according to your word, O God. So touch hearts and minds with this message today, we pray. That those who haven't repented will repent. Turn to you and be saved. Putting their belief in the only begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.